Welcome. It's great to have you all here. You know, those of you taking Dr. John's STEM courses know the difference between computer hardware and computer software. But do you know how many software engineers it takes to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> no? Zero. It's a hardware problem. Right? <laughs> All right, well, it's time to get it over to Dr. John himself with the Technology Spotlight. Imagine you're walking outside on a beautiful, clear day, and then all of a sudden, you see it. A fireball going through the sky. It's amazing, and then you realize it's coming closer, and it's slowing down. It's a UFO and it's coming closer, and then dust goes everywhere, and you would run, except in the name of science, you have to see what it is. <laughs> and then, finally, when the dust settles, you see something, and it looks like a, like a Mars rover. That's what you would see if you were a Martian, because <laughs> this last week, NASA landed their rover on Mars, and it would have been an amazing sight if you had been walking along on the surface of Mars. Now you'll notice right next to the rover, right in front, there's a little drone, a little helicopter thing. That's their uh, Ingenuity drone that is riding inside of the Curiosity rover. And within 30 days, they're gonna put it out on the ground and try it out. It's gonna be the first aircraft on Mars. It's gonna be pretty amazing if it works because the Martian atmosphere is so much thinner than it is here on Earth. Some of you might remember we talked about this when they launched the rocket to go to Mars, and we've been waiting and waiting for seven months until this week when they finally made it. But there was some pretty amazing tech that they used in order to get that rover safely on the ground. And we're gonna talk a little bit about some of that tech tonight. Uh, you'll notice in this diagram, this is all the pieces of the spacecraft to get the rover on the ground. The very top piece is the thing that has the fuel and the computers that they use going through space. And then the next thing is the shell, and then the thing in the middle there, they call the sky crane, that carries the rover. And then the rover itself, you can see how the wheels are kind of folded up. And then finally, at the very bottom, is the heat shield. And that all goes together and uh, takes the rover to Mars. The very first part is going through Martian atmosphere. And they say that uh, the Martian atmosphere is hard because it's not thick enough to slow you down much, but it's thick enough to make you get really, really hot. And so it doesn't have the benefit like Earth's atmosphere to really slow you down, but you still have the problems. <laughs> and so there's that first part, and this whole landing sequence takes about seven minutes. So they like to call it the seven minutes of terror. Because, you know, they know that for sure they're going to land. They just don't know if it's going to be a soft landing or a hard landing. <laughs> and so uh, that's that seven minutes of terror. But it takes about 15 minutes for the signal that says what happened to travel from Mars to Earth. So even though it only takes seven minutes for the landing, we don't know for 15 minutes. Waiting, waiting, waiting to see what happens. So there were some pretty nervous engineers at, at this part. Uh, but after that... Uh, that part where it goes through the Earth's atmosphere and gets really hot, then they put out a parachute. And the parachute slows it down enough. And remember, the atmosphere is really thin. So uh, it doesn't work as good as it would here on Earth. But the parachute slows it down enough that they can 
get rid of the heat shield. And uh, I want to show you some actual video footage that they captured of the rover going uh, through this landing sequence. It's pretty amazing to think this isn't some animation they made up. This is actually the landing process happening. So watch this video. You can see how, um, you can see that's the parachute. On the left side, they have it slowed down so you can see a little bit better. That's the actual parachute opening as they're landing on Mars. Can you see that Martian sky up there? It's really amazing to me that that's, that's the actual parachute happening. And so then once the parachute's out, it flies with the parachute for a while. And um, it can get rid of that heat shield, like I said. And the rover can start looking down at the ground. And this is where the new tech comes in. Because on the, uh, the rover, they have some special uh, hardware for tracking the ground. And they have pictures that they already took of Mars that they line up with pictures they take as they're coming down. And then they use their computer algorithms to figure out exactly where they are and navigate to exactly where they want to be. And instead of being within a mile of the target, they can be within, say, 100 feet of the target. So it's a pretty big difference. It's really, really uh, new advanced landing technology. And remember, we can't have some pilot there flying it because 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back, too late, right? So they have to have the computer look at the pictures and compare it to what it knows and figure out how they go together, figure out where it is, and then it has pre-programmed spots that are safe and spots that are dangerous. And the rover was landing in Jezero Crater on Mars, which has a lot of really dangerous things around it. It has cliffs, it has really big rocks. But because of this new landing system, they were able to slip right in to where they wanted to be. So let's watch a video of the heat shield coming off and it coming down. There goes the heat shield. Down, down. And you can see the Martian ground. This isn't some animation. This is the real Martian ground as we're coming down on a parachute. And if you watch carefully, you can see little features like some little craters and uh, rocks and hills and things. And those are what the camera is watching for, to be able to recognize and line up. And after it came down for a while, then it comes to the really exciting part where the little sky crane turns on its little thrusters and lowers the rover down to the ground with cables. And they actually have a video of this. This is so amazing to me. So well, we're going to watch that as it's coming down. And uh, uh, quite a bit happens because they show different screens, but uh, I think we'll just go for it. So you can see we're coming down towards the ground. You can see the sky crane turn on and all kinds of dust blowing everywhere. Now we're going to switch to where one video is looking up at the sky crane and one video is looking down. See here, we're starting to lower the rover. The top one there is the sky crane. You can see the rover coming down. This is actual footage. And uh, as it gets closer to the ground, it gets really dusty. Come on, we can make it. And you can't hardly even tell what's going on. But then you can see the sky crane flying away because it finished its mission of putting the rover on the ground. And yes, we got it. <laughs> Whew. Uh, of course. That footage of them cheering was 15 minutes later, <laughs> after the <laughs> rover was already safe. So uh, we have to talk a little bit more about what this new Perseverance rover is going to do on Mars in Jezero Crater. It has 
some really neat experiments. Of course, it's going to be looking at rocks and things because, you know, uh, what else are you going to look at on Mars, right? <laughs> there isn't much else. Uh, but they also have a new experiment they call MOXIE that's going to be pulling oxygen out of the atmosphere. Remember, uh, the Martian atmosphere is quite a bit different than Earth. It's almost completely carbon dioxide, not hardly any oxygen like we have here. That's what we breathe, right? But the carbon dioxide has oxygen. And so their MOXIE experiment is going to break the oxygen out. And that will be really useful if we ever send anyone to Mars, because oxygen is what we need to breathe, of course. And also, they think maybe we could make our rocket fuel right there with that carbon dioxide. So that's a really interesting experiment getting ready for things to come. And then, like I say, the, the rover has a special arm with a drill and a lot of amazing cameras. And then they're also going to be collecting samples and looking for any signs of Martian life. And of course, they'd be small signs because they're expecting Martian life to be bacteria, right? <laughs> if there's any signs at all, uh, that's what they're looking for first. And you know, if there are big things, there's probably bacteria too. <laughs> so it's a good place to start. But they're going to save any really interesting rock samples and collect them and then deposit them somewhere so later on we could send a return mission to pick them up and bring them back to Earth and actually look at them. So uh, they're you know, planning for the future and looking for amazing things. It depends a lot on how amazing their discoveries are and if those samples are interesting enough for us to want to actually send a spaceship all the way there and bring them back. You know, but if the Martians find them first, then it'll be too late anyway. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, it's pretty exciting to think about uh, where this could go. And if, if we're ever going to send people there, we're going to need to understand a lot more about what's going on and uh, how we can make our missions effective and safe and everything. That's all the tech we have the time for. Now it's time for a Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. <sighs> you know, breakthroughs, when you read about them, when you hear about them, and you learn about them, it's like, man, that's what I want to be. I mean, seeing those NASA engineers, like, that's what I want. I want to be the guy going, yeah. <laughs> Man, I did it. And you know, that's kind of, I mean, that's the part we love, right? Um, but unfortunately, there's that huge optimism curve. You have to go all the way down and climb back up the other side. I mean, when you're on the top of the optimism curve, you're kind of like, it's coming. Get ready. I mean, pretty soon, you're going to see me there. I'm going to be in my Learjet, nothing but my underwear, eating Cheetos. I'm already halfway there. I got the underwear and the Cheetos. So. And then you go down and you start finding out, oh man, all the problems, this is impossible. And then you gotta climb and figure out how to make whatever you're doing actually work and happen. So, how, are we, how is this tying in? <laughs> so tonight we're gonna talk about buildings and structures. Now, in the early 1800s, as cities started to develop and we saw humankind um, starting to live in more collective locations, we started getting tighter on room. 
And so one of the things that we see happen is buildings with multiple levels. So all of a sudden, that area is twice as large floor space because you have two levels or maybe even more. And then the challenge became, okay, if you keep making it taller, what are you going to do about the structure being strong enough to have people actually safely living in there? Okay, and t tonight we're going to talk about someone named William Jenny, and he was coming into this uh, in the mid-1800s. He was aware of this problem, and of course, this problem was not just in, in America. This was in Europe and other places where they started getting the desire to have taller buildings in these really populated cities. So William Jenny, he uh, was in Massachusetts, went to Harvard, and then he went um, over to Paris to study engineering and design. And I just want to show you this quick picture here. This is fun. Um, see that, that guy over there? That was one of his classmates who was named Gustav Eiffel. And um, yeah, I mean, if you went back in time, the Eiffel Tower designer sitting in that, you could just go in that classroom, go right up to, where's Mr. I there he is. Someday you're going to design an awesome paperweight that's on my desk. <laughs> You've got a real future. <laughs> okay. But no, he, they were classmates, which is a neat thing. Well, he comes back to America, and he goes to Chicago, and William Jenny does. And he starts opening a business to design buildings, and he becomes aware of this. Now, this is something that throughout time of big buildings, I mean, if you look at some of these, we, of course, we know about the pyramids. That's one solution of having a, a structure that's very tall is the base huge and then a point at the top. Okay, there's like, on, on the top floor, there's room for one person. Um, but one of the challenges was they used stone for a lot of the buildings. And as you start building those higher, the weight becomes so intense that the walls, which are holding up the building, have to be really strong. In fact, if you start talking about like more than three floors, they started having to build the walls, this in the 1800s, uh, when they used stone and brick as, as the structure pieces. They were having walls sometimes six feet thick to be able to hold how high up the, the structure was becoming. So it was a limiting factor. They couldn't build it much taller than three or higher, depending on the materials they used, because it wasn't strong enough. So that's, that's kind of where things were as William started to look at tackling this problem. And he spent quite a bit of time on trying to figure this out, and then one day, he decides to go home early. We don't know the details of why. Was it a bad day? Was it one of those low optimism curve days? We don't know. But he goes home, and his wife was surprised to see him, and she was reading a book. And she ran across the room to see him and set the book on a birdcage and you know, started greeting her husband. And he walks across the room, right past her, comes up to the birdcage, and he picks up the, this is one of these big books, picks it up, <laughs> picks it up again. <laughs> Right now, she's like, okay. <laughs> Bird's like, whoa. <laughs> and he turns around and he says, look at that. It works. And she's like, okay. <laughs> this is why you came home early? Okay. And he says, if this bird cage, this wire cage, can hold this really heavy book and, and support that weight, why couldn't a similar frame in a building support the entire building structure? And this excited him a lot, and he, he started looking at this. Instead of not building all the walls of metal, 
but just the skeleton, you could say, of the building and building it out of a frame of metal, of steel and iron. So he starts on this project. And there's a building that he, um, he's been hired to design and to build. And so he starts designing it. And he uses steel and iron to do this. And as he's constructing, this isn't like boards made of metal. I mean, if you imagine a board made of iron, that's a, a very heavy piece of, of metal. But what they did was they used what is now called structural steel technique. And that is where they had a flat piece of metal and then they bent that metal, or they welded two flat pieces of metal together to create more structurally strong and yet light pieces. So if you look at these, these are some of the common um, pieces. And these probably look pretty familiar because they're very common in today's construction of being able to efficiently and yet strongly build something. So it's much lighter than if you used a metal bar, and yet it's still very strong because of the engineering that they use in this. So he starts building this building, and the entire skeleton or frame of this is made out of metal. And this was ended up being 10 stories tall when they finished the building. And it was what they a lot of people call this the father of skyscrapers because it was kind of the first of its kind, and he even had an elevator in there, which that's kind of a whole other breakthrough of its own. It used to be the poor people lived on the top floor because you had to run stairs. <laughs> And outhouses were a pain, okay? <laughs> but with the elevator, all of a sudden, those are luxury because it's easy to get up, it's easy to get down. And this would open up a whole new way of building. And the weight of that building, 10-story building, was about one-third of the weight of other stone buildings that were made out of stone. All of a sudden, the stone or the brick wasn't holding up the building. And they, they hung stone or brick on the sides of these pieces of frames, framed out of metal, just you know to cover it and to make it look good, but it wasn't the actual thing that was the structural strength of the building. And now, of course, we can do things like have the outside completely covered in glass or something. And of course, it's not the glass is super strong; it's holding up the building. It's because the glass doesn't have to hold up the building because it's being held up on the inside by something really strong. So this would, they would eventually add two layers, two more floors, so 12 floors um, on this building. And very quickly, it was, its record was broken because all of a sudden now this was a new way of building. And just a few years, his classmate would really knock it out of the park with the Eiffel Tower. Um, but this just goes to show, you know, when you're feeling like I, I need an idea, maybe you should just go home. Okay? <laughs> but don't kill the bird. Okay. <laughs> All right. And now, introducing Roger Billings. like a lunar landing on Mars. <laughs> lunar landing on Mars. It's like the Earth atmosphere, huh? I love it. Boy, that was a good presentation, Tobias and John. I, uh, 
That part about the real Martians, though, the real Martian surface, that means it must have real Martians there. They must. And so they saw this fireball coming in, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. So how are you today? I'm doing really well. Mm -hmm. What do you have? So here it is. Okay. This is it. That. What is yeah. it? It's an idea. See how the light is an idea? And you can turn the light off. That would be the bottom of the optimism curve. <laughs> <laughs> and you can turn it back on. Uh-huh. It's called electricity filaments. It's actually an LED bulb, but it's styled after the Edison bulb. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about this light bulb is that it's not connected. Oh, wow. It's just hanging there. Hmm. So how Something does that like work? That. Yeah, well, I have this Acellus coaster, which you can find at David's store, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, you can see. Can you see how that goes through I there? I can. It doesn't interrupt it at all. Yeah, it doesn't. And it's interesting that the electricity is going through air mm -hmm. and getting to the light. You can turn it off and turn it on, but all the time it's just floating there. You remember we talked about a uh, thing called a Hall effect. Mm -hmm. Remember the Hall effect is the effect that Elon Musk is in his little low orbit satellite trains. Right? But uh, this is the Hall effect being used right here in the light bulb. Edison invented the light bulb, but the Hall effect is neat. So the Hall effect is a way of sensing the presence of a magnet. And since we have a Hall effect sensor up here, and we have an electric electromagnet, a coil, that turns on and off according to whether or not this magnet in the base is close, if it gets too close, it turns off and it drops the light back down. If it gets too far away, the magnet isn't sensed anymore, so it turns this one back on, and so this thing bounces up and down. But it does it so fast that it appears to just be floating there. It really is. And it's really pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I am making a whole bunch of these. You are? Yeah. I and help of the factory. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're going to give them to a lot of the, the school superintendents around, around the nation because we say this is a demonstration of a solace. This gap here, I'm going to put this in the gap again. Do you know what we call this gap? Nope. Oh, look at that. Oh, goodness. <laughs> it, it, ate, it ate my thing. Okay. It's like the umbrella oh, there in it comes. the storm. We call that... The distance. The distance. Yeah. The gap yeah. is the distance. The gap is the distance. Okay. And what we're saying is we have electricity flowing over the distance. And literally, we're using a magnetic field to get the electricity down here to light up the bulb. But this is like a cellus. A cellus is about learning over a distance. And just think, if you have a student right here and a teacher right here, then the teacher can take a hold of the student and say, now look, and listen, and teach. But if the student is at a distance, like at home, mm -hmm. then it's much more difficult for the teacher to be able to reach through the dis distance and be able to inspire and, and help the student learn. And that really is the mission that is sell us with an A. Can you even say that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Hello, camera. There you go. Can't see it very well, can you? Oh, there. You oh, can. I saw it. Saw us. The distance works. Uh, a lot of the students that are with us today are actually taking courses on Acellus, and I thought it would be extremely interesting if we were to help them understand some of the inner workings of what's going on. Um, the secrets. The secrets. You know, uh, when, I, when I became affluent, affluent, well, a little bit, when I had a little bit of money, <laughs> we decided to join a gym. You know, you go to a gym and you can be healthy and work out. I went because I really liked the, you know, the sauna and some of those things. But anyway, <laughs> they, they have nice machines there. And so I went and climbed on the bicycle. I like bicycles. I climbed on the bicycle and I started pedaling, but there was something wrong with this bicycle. It was really hard to pedal. <laughs> and so I called it, something wrong with my bicycle. It's really hard <laughs> to pedal. And he says, yeah, yeah, that's, that's on purpose. And I said, you know, my bicycle growing up was like this once, and I straightened the wheel so it wasn't rubbing, and it worked a lot better. You should fix this. <laughs> and he says, it is fixed. The whole idea is for it to be hard to pedal because that develops your muscles. Oh. Mm, resistance. And that's kind of like a cellus. There's some things on it. People say, well, I don't like that. That's hard. <laughs> and we smile. Is the goal to make it easy or is the goal to make it work, to make it effective? Learning is a process. It's a lot like exercising. Exercising develops your muscle, and it can be very hard, but then as you do it every day, your muscles become stronger, and it gets easier. That's why on those machines, they got a little thing to make it harder. And then pretty soon that season, you make it harder again and again and again. And that's what we try to do in a cellus. Only the muscle that we're developing with the cellus is the gray matter muscle. Which one's that? No, I must not have very much of it. <laughs> Do tell us. That's my hairdo, of course. <laughs> the gray matter, don't you get it? But, uh, and I earned they, that. They want it. Yeah, I get, yeah, the, I I really, get the hair. I really <laughs> earned it. Did you get it? Okay, good. But seriously, I think it would be kind of interesting to know about some of the things that we've put in a cellus that you might appreciate more if you knew why we did it and what they're doing. And I'd like to talk a little bit about okay. it. I think Acellus is a very amazing piece of technology. Some of the brightest minds, in fact, the brightest we could find, have come together and worked very, very hard to be able to get it where it is. Here we are after a really tough year that the world's been through. A lot of schools have needed to be closed. Students have had study at home. A lot of students got behind, and reports are now starting to come in saying that Acellus turned out to be, if not one of the most effective learning systems that is there. And a lot of, a lot of students have really had success learning over the Acellus interface or the Acellus machine, and I, I think it's good to talk about why. Um, we never did try to make it easy. We tried to make it enjoyable and fun. But most of all, we tried to make a cellus effective. We wanted to develop the, the knowledge 
inside of your your noggin. Is that a is that an okay word? Mm -hmm. Inside your noggin, inside so your that head. you would be able to do things. Inside my head. Your head's a noggin. Uh -huh. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm trying to explain it to them so they. Okay, can will help. you translate? Go ahead and translate yeah, that. Yeah, the part. noggin is the head. Okay, good. <laughs> so there's knowledge inside of it. Okay, good. <laughs> so how do you get it in there? Yeah. Uh, in science, very often the the first big challenge is to figure out what's going on. We do experiments to try and understand what's happening. And then when we start to figure out what's happening, then we try to design things to achieve the result we want. And so that's how we build knowledge upon knowledge upon knowledge and then be able to apply it. My specialty throughout my career has been what I call applied science. There are a lot of scientists that focus pretty much on developing just the concepts and, and discovering the basic laws of science. And uh, a scientist could spend their whole career and just study one little thing and discover everything about that one little thing. Me, I like to read the work of these fundamental scientists and I like to read about all their discoveries and then I like to figure out what you can make out of them. I like to make things, right? Mm -hmm. So, we started out by studying why students didn't do better. We created a learning system, and of course we had to do it just like everybody else does because that's all we knew. But then when we started having students use the learning system, we saw that it wasn't nearly as effective as we wanted it to be. And you need to understand, this goes back like 18 years. We've been up the optimism curve, down the <laughs> optimism curve, and we're gradually coming back up. But uh, one of the real interesting things that became very apparent is that there were a lot of students at a young age, like first graders, second graders, even third graders, that loved science, they loved math, they really thought they were gonna be scientists, and by the time they got the fifth grade, they didn't want anything to do with science. They didn't want anything to do with math. And I wanted to know why. What's happening? Where are we disconnecting between the third and the fifth grade that it makes students go away from science? So we started really looking at the data and discovered that the kids were losing the ability to keep up with the math lessons. They couldn't do the math. They started getting into real strange things like fractions. <laughs> fractions have taken out a lot of kids. Just, I don't like fractions. And there are other concepts like that that are are very difficult for students. And so I started to study, why are fractions hard for people? Fractions are a very useful thing. They're gonna need them in their lives. Why are they having a hard time in elementary school? And as we studied it, we had a very surprising answer. A lot of the reasons why these students weren't learning fractions is because they didn't know math facts. And what are math facts? Well, it's like, Four plus four is nine, or, or was it seven? <laughs> eight. Eight, eight. I, I was, I was going to say eight next. <laughs> Honest. Honest. Seven times seven, math facts. These are just addition, multiplication, subtraction, division tables. If people memorize those, you say, well, what is that going to matter to fractions? What's that going to matter to learning how to do story problems? And what we learned was a very eye-opening uh, thing, and that is that when a teacher is teaching 
these different things in math, they have to make examples. And they're making examples that rely on math facts. And if the kids don't know the math facts, as soon as the teacher uses one, the student gets lost. The answer, teach them their math facts, and then they can keep up with it. And we really determined that that seemed to be one of the big problems in elementary students in their, in their math courses. So we turned our attention to how do we get students to learn math facts? And we were in for a real ride. Some of you have heard some of the stories that came out of this mm -hmm. because it wasn't easy. Uh, we thought, well, maybe the reason they're not learning these is because they get bored. Let's entertain them. We made games. And then we made stories. And then we made music. We made animations. We made all these different things. And we got it now. We tried on the kids, and, and it didn't work, at least not with very many of them. And so uh, we finally had our first breakthrough with a gingerbread man. Yeah, we had a little math fact teacher, little animated guy that was a gingerbread man. And uh, he went through this little episode teaching math facts to the students. And what happened is someone kept eating the gingerbread man bit off his foot and then they bit off his hand and and that was the first time we saw any progress on the score in the math facts and I saw that and I thought oh my goodness <laughs> what's wrong with these kids <laughs> this is not good but as we delved in deeper we began to find out there was something else going on and that was the story was engaging enough that it was shifting the attention of their brains over here on the story and the math facts were slipping in. And that started out the eventual development of the system we use today. If you look at the math fact drills that we do in elementary Acellus, they are very effective and they're very powerful. And how did we finally make them work? Well, we learned to respect the ability of the human brain more than we ever ever dreamed that, that we should. The way that a, a young student's mind learns is really, really amazing. And you don't make them learn by making it easier. You make them learn by making it harder. So we developed a way of training math facts. First thing, someone here tonight, uh, Jacob, came up with the idea that we ought to group the math facts differently. And so we used to do, okay, let's do the threes. Three plus one, three plus two, three plus four, three plus five. Those are the threes, right? And, and he said, no, we should do the tens. I said, the tens? Yeah. Two plus eight, seven plus three, six plus four, five plus five. They all are the same value. And that was very helpful. That was a breakthrough. But then we got into this thing about trying to get them to think about something else while what I like to call their subconscious mind was learning the math facts. So we made this thing where you would have to know the math fact to be able to put a number on a, on a table. We made a, a field and there were these numbers there and you had to put some in and the way that we had it is if you were clever, you'd be thinking ahead of how you could get double points and triple points, and we kept points. 
And so just getting them was kind of boring, but if you start thinking, oh, if I were to put this here and then that there, and then this, then I'd be able to get double. And then they got real clever and they realized, and if I could do this and this, then I could get triple points. And so they started figuring out how to get those points and they forgot that they were learning math facts. And they did really well. And you say, well, you kept them entertained. And I think, no, I think we triggered their cognitive learning. And in Acellus, drills are used as a tool to help people memorize. To be successful in learning, there are some things you need to memorize. And yeah, I don't need to memorize th three plus four because I've got enough fingers. Three plus four is one, two, three. You know, you can, you can figure it out or count them. But if you're trying to keep up with the teacher that's given the example on fractions, you better have it memorized. And there are a lot of things in learning that you have to memorize. It's really important to be able to. Memorization is a skill, just like being able to lift weights is a skill. And as you do it, you get better at it. And if you say, this is so hard, this is so hard to learn this, keep working at it. It'll become easier and easier and easier. And we want to have very agile minds so that we can be able to do these things. Are you getting ready to say something? <laughs> Time was, out, guys. I was just thinking she, She's about, got that look in her eye. <laughs> well, okay. I was, yes, I was using my, I was trying to understand agile minds. I was okay. thinking about the mind and thinking, what does it mean to be, have an agile mind? And I was wanting one. So. <laughs> you want an agile mind? Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> now, what do, you, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, when I say that we'd have an agile mind, I mean a mind that can very easily and quickly gather knowledge and be able to retain it and to be able to pull it back up on demand and use it. Uh, when we talk about some of the technologies that John and, and Tobias shared with us tonight, I mean, we're doing things on the lunar surface. Uh, it, it's really kind of amazing that we could do that. Someone had a lot of really good ideas. And, you know, you can't just have an idea of how you're going to land on Mars. You have to have an idea that's based on an understanding of mm -hmm. science and engineering and math and the laws. And to be able to do those things easily and quickly and, and successfully requires a very healthy mind that can see things, that can analyze them, and know how to apply the different technologies. And that's exactly what we want to do. Is that agile? Mm -hmm. I, like, I like that word. She likes that word. Mm -hmm. I do. Put that one in the books, okay. <laughs> so coming back, the drills are very effective methods of helping people memorize things. Memorizing math facts is important. Uh, growing up, I wasn't a very good memorizer. And I, uh, I think it had to do a little bit with my mental laziness. I don't think I developed my mind. It wasn't until I was quite a bit older and in college that I realized, you know, I need to I need to strap down and kind of change things. Uh, my first really big memorization task came with Portuguese. I wanted to learn Portuguese. I had a chance to go to Brazil, and I wanted to be able to communicate. But uh, 
in, in a lot of the subjects I've been involved in, I could kind of figure out things. I could figure out how to do math. I didn't have to memorize the formula because, frankly, during the exam, I could, remember, I could figure it out. And it was easier for me to figure it out than it was to memorize it. And that was because I hadn't practiced. I was so out of shape in remembering and memorizing. When I got to Portuguese, it turned out that I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I know what we call it in English, but why do they call it that? Of all the things, why would they call it that? Like, you know, we have cobblestones in America. Cobblestones are when you make a road out of rocks. Cobblestone road, it's neat. I'm down there in Brazil and they have a lot of roads made with rocks. And they don't call them cobblestones. They call them parallelepipedus. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> what? Parallelepipedus? Yeah. You can't figure that out. The only way you get to know it is if you can memorize it. And I wasn't very good at memorizing, so I decided that either I'm going to be defunct or I'm going to develop this capability. And so I started learning to memorize. And I found out that I could. It took practice. And I, I now, even today, I have a lot of things that I like to work on just to uh, give myself practice in memorizing. I don't know if I should get quite this informative. Should this I tell is life experiences. I think you have to share. I have to share this? What if, <laughs> what if this is way off the edge? <laughs> it might help okay. someone. <laughs> All right. So have any of you ever had a cold? We've had colds, you know, everyone's fine. And one of the things that I don't like about colds, you get a little congested, makes it hard to sleep. So I was watching football players once, and I noticed they have these neat little things they put on their nose so they can breathe when they're playing football. And I saw those in the drugstore, so I got some. I call them breathe easies. That's yeah, breathe easies. And you just put them on your nose when you're a little congested, and you can breathe pretty good. So I got some. Now, I have three places that I usually go. I have the place close to work, I have the place at home, and then I have the place out in the country. And I'm in one of those places usually, or I'm traveling. So I got some of these Breathe Easies, and I put them at all three places. So if I ever got congested any place, I'd have some Breathe Easies. Now this story is saying, what in the world? <laughs> yeah. Well, here it comes, here it comes. So when I need some Breathe Easies at one of these locations, I pull out the little box, and I get some, and they come stuck together in two, so I rip them in half, a whole stack of them, and I count how many there are, and I put them there on the little uh, cabinet, and I use one, okay? And then I memorize how many are left there. <laughs> now you say, oh, this is really getting lame. No, but I do. <laughs> and I know how many are left there at all three places I go. And so every time I use one, I have to update my memory. And it's really frustrating for me when I come and I'm wrong. Someone <laughs> took one. What happened? How, how, I already used that one. But it's a little memory game that I play with myself to help me keep my memory sharp. And it is true that like if you exercise by lifting weights, if you do it often, it becomes 
easy, impossible to do. And the same thing's true with your mind. And if you really want to be good with your mind, then you need to put some effort into toning and developing your brain. And who doesn't want to be good with their mind? I mean, that's how you communicate, that's how you invent things, that's how you create music, that's how you do just about anything you want to do, is developing your mental abilities. And I think it's a, a really, really good thing to do. Yes, I could tell you how many I have at each place. <laughs> but I would rather not go into that. <laughs> you know. But it, it seems like a small thing, but I found that with three different places and three running totals, that it's quite interesting for me, and it's just one of those things that I do. And I have a whole bunch of things like that that I do, which I find help me to, to be disciplined. I had a very hard time with spelling growing up. I turned in a, a writing assignment to a teacher. I got marked with a lot of those red marks, and a lot of them were for misspelled words. And then she gave paper back to me, and I saw it, and it was not the kind of grade I was hoping to get. And uh, she said, you really need to work on your spelling. I wrote a little note on it and gave it back to her. And my note said, I feel sorry for anybody that only knows Seriously. one way to spell a word. <laughs> Mark Twain. <laughs> I know a lot of ways to spell a word. <laughs> she got really upset because on one page, I spelled the same word two different ways and both were wrong. <laughs> That's creative. But you see, spelling, <laughs> spelling has some rules. I know. Yeah, like, did you know in chemistry we have rules? We had the ideal gas law. And I learned the ideal gas law in high school. And then when I got to the university, I was taking a chemistry class by Dr. Tracy Hall one of the greatest scientists I've ever met. And this year, he had to teach freshman chemistry because the guy that normally taught it was gone, so I took his class. And I'm sitting in there, and we got to the lecture on the ideal gas law. And he said, okay, we're gonna talk about the ideal gas law. And I already know about this. <laughs> and he says, the only problem with the ideal gas law is so far we've never found an ideal gas. <laughs> And he says, seriously, no gas follows this law. The gases don't, don't, don't believe this law. <laughs> Hydrogen comes the closest. I like that. <laughs> of course. But it's interesting that it's a law that really isn't a law. It's a thing that you learn, and then you find out that it's a little bit more complicated and a little bit more interesting. Well, I was pretty glad to find that out. In English, like, for example, for spelling, we have all kinds of laws. I before E. I got that down. And then they said, except after C. And I said, what? <laughs> it said I before E or not. And almost all the laws in spelling, it seems like they have exceptions. They do. And it finally turned out you just have to memorize it. And I decided that I needed to learn how to spell. And I think it's very, very helpful. You can. Uh, sometimes when you're doing a search on your computer, if you can't spell, you can't even do the search. And you say, boy, the only way that Google can't figure it out is if you really misspell it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but uh, 
I think it's really important to memorize how to spell words. It's important to learn these math facts. It's important to learn some important dates in history. It's important to learn some of the names and things in biology and so forth. So you need to be able to memorize these things. And when you get that capability, you're going to be able to use it in so many ways throughout your life. It will really enrich your life. And a lot of Acillus is geared to help you to be able to memorize. And yeah, is it a little bit of work? Yes, it is a little bit difficult, especially when you're learning how to do it. Once you get going, it gets a lot easier. Another thing is uh, learning very often is organized in such a way that you learn one layer, and then another layer, and then another layer, and then another layer. Uh, my grandfather was a bricklayer. And uh, he, he was a really interesting grandpa. Um, he was hired by different people to help build houses and buildings and so forth. And uh, I met one gentleman that hired my grandpa. He was an older fellow, and he was telling me about my grandpa. And he says, yeah, I, I hired your, your grandpa to lay brick for me. And he says, I went in, and we were laying the brick, and here comes your grandpa. And he was tearing out everybody else's brick and relaying them because he thought they weren't straight. <laughs> But one thing about lame brick, you can put in a row of brick, and then you can do the next row, and then the next row. But you can't start with the top and work down. You have to build the foundation from the bottom and then come up. And it turns out that many things in learning are that way. If you miss the first row, you can't learn the second row. If you miss the first concept, well, then you can't learn the ones that go on top of that. And you go into a class without the foundation, and it's just a waste of time because you can't learn what they're teaching. And there's a lot of reasons why you might not have the foundation. Maybe your family moved, and somehow you missed that in both schools because you changed. Or maybe you were sick. Or There's a lot of reason why we might miss a concept. But when you miss it, you're stuck. You can't, you can't learn. And so a lot of what we do in Acellus is find out when someone is missing an important concept. And we, we use all kinds of tricks to detect those concepts that are missing. And then we try to fill in the missing concepts right away. Now, I think you might have a similar result if you have one student and one teacher, and the teacher is completely focused on one student. Because every time the teacher sees that you're missing a concept, they can teach it to you right then. But unfortunately, in, in many of our schools, you have one teacher and 30 kids. And it's really hard to monitor every student, see everything they're missing all the time. And that's where Acellus helps leverage the teachers a little bit. But I think if, if you notice, Acellus, uh, if, if you put in a certain wrong answer, and Acellus is able to determine from that wrong answer that there is a concept you've, you've missed, it'll come right back and teach it right then. And when you start getting those concepts filled in, then pretty soon you start succeeding in your learning education. It's a big thing. I, I could talk an awful lot about the technology that we build into Acellus that makes it work as well as it does. But the big thing is a lot of schools are seeing things happen that are really amazing. Two days ago, we were contacted by a uh, teacher that is at a Native American school. It's on a, one of our uh, reservations here in America. 
And this particular teacher is the one that gets all the problem students. And so she got a us for her, her students because these kids just really struggle. And she put them on a us and she just told us, she said, my goodness, in one year, they're up 81 points, 82 points, 83 points in one year. She says, I am absolutely flabbergasted. That just thrills me. And I'm getting other reports like that. I got another report from a, a principal. This is through my grapevine. I was told by someone that talked to her, but by one of the principals in a New York city school said that Acellus is helping the students in her school for the first time really start to learn material in math and science. And that's, thr that's thrilling to me. I really think as people start realizing that they can learn and master the stuff, it's going to change their lives. Uh, everybody learns differently. And that doesn't mean one smarter or dumber. But a lot of the, uh, the ways we teach things are kind of for the masses. For most of the kids, maybe learn this way, but a lot don't. Um, for example, there are some students come into our schools from another nation and they really don't even speak English. And if they speak it, they only speak it on a limited basis. How do you teach them something like chemistry or physics if they can't understand your English? And so you have all of these different challenges of different people coming in. Well, there are a lot of students that speak English, but they don't speak math because they didn't do that much when they were in elementary or they don't do this or that or the other. And the challenge of Acellus is to realize that every single student on Acellus is different. They learn different, they have different backgrounds, and very often uh, they have different attitudes about learning. And yet what I'm discovering is that every student is capable of learning. Um, I'm seeing uh, students that have been determined to have learning disabilities doing extremely well in a cellist. These are kids, they say, they'll never read, and yet they are. They're reading at you know, third and fourth grade levels right at that age, and, and it's amazing what you can do when you quit deciding that you can't and dig in and try to do it. So my point today is one of the most important things I'm ever gonna say in Science Live, and that is that you are given an opportunity every day when you sit down at a cellus to determine what your life is gonna be like, what you're gonna be able to accomplish, how happy you're gonna be, a lot of other things. And yes, learning is work. And that's something that neither I nor anyone else can change. Learning is work. But hopefully I can convince you it's worth it. It's worth the effort. And as you start to succeed, then you begin to be really excited about it. Um, looking at it another way, sports are work. To be able to really excel in sports, people have to really sweat. They have to really put in the effort and train and develop and tone and practice. And education, learning, 
does require some effort. But when you learn, it's not making that person smarter or it's not making... It's not making that person smarter. <laughs> it's making you successful. It's giving you the power and ability to do the things that you want. And you know, when you can do something, when you're empowered to do things that you choose to do, it is a complete life changer. And I am thrilled that we're seeing such incredible success by schools this year. We, we've been doing a big study where we're comparing all of the 6,200 Acela schools with all of the schools that are still waiting to get Acelas, waiting to know they need to sell us. But uh, we're doing exceptionally well. And my team was so proud of themselves. Yes, and look how good they're all doing. I'm saying, well, why didn't they do good? <laughs> What's wrong over here when, you know, we're, we're going to do better? But please, please, no matter what we do with the cellus, no matter how hard your teachers work, the key to learning is your own attitude. You have to be willing to put in the effort if you're really going to master any material or any subject. And so the, the number one mission of Science Live is to help people realize the value of investing themselves into their education. And I, there's just no way I could tell you well enough what this is going to mean to you and your family and your friends later on, and, and in many cases to this world. I believe that there are people that are in our CELUS courses today that are going to bring to the world some of the greatest discoveries of our time. And whether or not those people achieve those, those objectives is going to depend on whether or not they learn their math facts, whether or not they learn chemistry, whether or not they learn physics or whatever the subject is. So study, study, study. And if it's hard, you know, then sweat a little bit, but don't give up. It does get easier. I just wish that I could learn back when I was a student like I can today. I could learn so much faster because I've decided that it's something I want to develop and I've worked at it. I just wish that I had done this very early in my life. And the, the human brain is just like a sponge in, in the elementary years. Some of these young kids can just take up so much knowledge. Uh, one of our teachers was telling me they think we need to get a really good language program for elementary students because they just pick it up so fast. And I really agree with that. Some have said that our math classes in elementary were great, but it's an area we need to improve, so here comes Mark Rogers. Come on, Mark. We've got a lot of kids <laughs> counting on you. And we're seeing really good results from these new courses that we, we're just releasing. So we're going to do everything we can to do our part and to enable, to empower you. But it doesn't work unless you're willing to put in the effort to pull this in. And remember, it's more precious than gold. The knowledge that you obtain and that you acquire is more precious than gold because you can accumulate gold with these kinds of capabilities. Do you agree? I agree.
All right, tell them. Tell them what you think. I agree. <laughs> You're angry? <laughs> See, vocabulary is not one of my things. Uh, how, how should I say it better? He's right. Do you want to do the light? I do. Okay. Whoops, 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 whoops. What? There we go. Oh. That is the bad attitude it that I felt when you said I was so angry. Looks so easy, doesn't it? This is me All being right, angry, let's see if not we can angry. Do it. There we go. There we go. There we go. Oh, we have success. So is this the Acellus effect? This is the Acellus effect. It's the ability to help students learn to get knowledge, even if they're at a distance from their wonderful teachers. It's neat. Yeah, and we'll keep working hard, but please, we need you to pull from your end as we push from this end, and the world will be a better place. Thank you. See you next time.